Greetings, listener, and welcome to Ryan Rambles You to Rest, the sleep podcast where I talk at length about matters of nearly no urgent need, nor heavy impact on our daily lives. In the interest of helping you there, off to a more peaceful state. In this episode, I am returning from hiatus to consider cautiously a handful of further fun activities of the variety enjoyed during the season typically most warm in the hemisphere located in the magnetic northern portion of the planet situated third from the star called Sol. For many on this planet, the episode will be released as the season is waning and preparing to move into a colder and often colorful autumn. However, in the San Francisco Bay Area, where I live, it is in fact often toward the end of September and early October that we experience our most pleasant and summerly weather. Therefore, I beseech you to allow this slight seasonal slip for your consideration of timely, tired, dreamy dissertation. Before we begin, I would like to recommend that you subscribe to this show on your podcast platform of choice or on YouTube. For news and announcements, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ryan Rambles Pod or follow me at Anvil1 on Twitter. Our soundtrack is by Disparition. And now, some updates for listeners of this and previous episodes. For starters, I wanted to extend my apology for missing all of you last month. I was extremely busy attending to a delightful family reunion abroad and moving to a new home. For those who moved in recent memory, you know just how all-encompassing the endeavor can be. And, as such, I have been unable to find time with the microphone until now. In Episode 7 of Ryan Rambles You to Rest, a sleep podcast, I orated an entry from wikipedia.org on the subject of bok choy. Now, before you become fully awake with excitement, I should have you know that I have only encountered bok choy on two occasions since, and my jury is still out on the subject matter. What I want to address now is the first sentence statement in that entry which reports that bok choy is a Chinese cabbage which is, quote, used as food. This raised for us the curiosity as to whether there are alternative uses of cabbage other than to be, quote, used as food. Well, I am displeased to report that my meager efforts of research on the internet have not exposed for our pleasure a single example 
of a non-culinary application for this bok choy brassica. I searched for alternative uses of cabbage and had hoped that such results as 45 plus ways to use leftover cabbage or 32 surprising ways to use cabbage would bear fruit. Unfortunately, among the 32 examples, there were no surprises that transcended the consumption of the vegetable. Therefore, it may remain to us a mystery, and we may safely conclude that there are few to no alternative uses of cabbage, and hence move on with our lives. If you are among the unfortunate, enthused, or sleepless enough to reach the parting word segment in Episode 7, Summertime, of Ryan Rambles You to Rest, then you may recall that the fifth parting word was abaft, which I have to admit I did not know the significance of at the time. Presuming that I am not, or was not, alone in ignorance of the word, I have in the meantime chosen to discover its meaning. According to Merriam-Webster, which has been in the defining business since 1928, abaft can be an adverb or preposition referring to a spatial relationship with the stern of a sea or aircraft. So a subject is abaft if it is toward the stern from where we are describing its presence, or else it is near the stern of our vessel. From what I can discern, it is synonymous with the more familiar terms aft and astern. We have also this from dictionary.com as regards abaft's origin. Origin of Abaft, 1225 to 75. Middle English, on baft, abaft, equivalent to a and onon plus baft. Old English baften, contraction of b plus aften. See by aft. Now that's a string of information that I don't personally completely follow, since my middle and old English aren't quite up to snuff. But the word is about 800 years old. For this reason, and the frequency with which I find myself aboard boats, I have frequently not been on boats, may both be cause for my own former ignorance of this word. Hopefully we have both learned a new word. Okay, that will do it for our brief update portion for this episode. Let's move on to the roundup. last episode's roundup, I enumerated a handful of my favorite summertime activities, but realized 
when our time was up, that there were still more excellent summertime activities to consider. That it would be a shame to move on without. For those who have forgotten or missed the last installment, I spoke about reading, going to the movies, having a cookout or barbecue, going camping, and going for a good hike. There were as well, within the subject of camping, a number of sub-activities, such as stargazing, for which you may return to that recording. A quick reminder about the roundup. Here I list strictly from memory, without notes or preparation, and may therefore ramble in just about any direction to the detriment of successfully listing everything in our topic du jour. Now, without further ado, let us continue the roundup of my favorite summertime activities. So I would say that it's not perhaps completely accurate to say that I go into this completely without preparation because the first thing that I want to mention in this roundup of summertime activities is what made me think that I should do a second part and it's what I realized I had left out while still recording the outro segment in the last episode. And that is roller coasters. And I guess that means in part that it's also theme parks or amusement parks, because you, generally speaking, don't find roller coasters in too many other places besides a county fair or at the boardwalk, if you happen to be near a boardwalk. But I don't want this to be completely inclusive of theme parks because it is difficult to cover every little part of theme parks or every little part of amusement parks that make them so much fun. They're designed to be entertaining usually for an entire day, and the best of them are truly entertaining for an entire day or more. So I wanted to make sure to mention roller coasters. And they're maybe compared to everything else that we've talked about so far, a bit maybe too exciting for a podcast like this because they are considered a thrill ride for 
thrill-seekers. But I have always loved roller coasters. Ever since I was a little kid, I think my first couple of thrill ride experiences may have been a little traumatic, and for that we would have to bring the folks in to confirm. But I know that from a relatively young age, I really liked them. And I have many fond memories of going to various amusement parks and seeking out the best available roller coasters to go on. And, you know, this is before things like Google reviews or Yelp or the internet where you could find lists created by enthusiasts that really get at all of the best possible available attractions at any given amusement park. From a young age, I can remember that some of my favorites were at Disney World. I didn't know at the time that they were speaking somewhat generally on the tame side of the spectrum for roller coasters, that they weren't super hardcore. And, you know, I loved the Runaway Train or Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. I, I forget which it's called. I still don't get the name right. And, of course, Space Mountain the two main attractions of the Magic Kingdom. And when I was a kid, there was just the Magic Kingdom at Disney World, and we lived on the East Coast, so that's where we went. My grandmother lived in Florida, so we would visit her and then also go to Disney World and eventually the beach. Now, of course, these many, many years later, these few decades later, there are quite a few very good roller coasters to be enjoyed at Disney World. The only downside of it being that you really need to be able to get around to several different theme parks within Disney World to get the full experience. So, one of my favorite more modern roller coasters there is the Rockin' Roller Coaster. And I suppose at this point that that's more like 20 years old now, if not a bit older. But that was the first roller coaster I went on that didn't have the classic climb at the beginning. If you haven't been on the rock and roller coaster, it's at the theme park that's based on movies. 
Uh, it used to be MGM Studios until they rebranded it, and at some point, I think it was before MGM was sold to Amazon, but it used to be MGM Studios. And the Rock and Roller Coaster's theme was that you went to an L.A. recording studio where the famous rock band Aerosmith was working on cutting a track. And uh, it turns out as you arrive that they're late to get to an event. I, th I don't remember. I think it might be the Grammys. And... Uh, Ileana Douglas, who was a popular actor in the earlier part of this millennium, is playing their manager who shows up and says, hey, you're late, we gotta go. And then she invites the group to go with them. And you leave out the back of the recording studio into an alleyway and you queue up at a parking garage, and it's nighttime in Los Angeles. And you know, Disney likes to make things feel almost realistic. And then the roller coaster cars are these stretched convertibles that are coming out of the parking garage. And you come out of the parking garage and pull to a stop at a traffic light in front of a tunnel. And then when the traffic light turns green, a loaded aircraft cable underneath the road just slingshots the whole car into the tunnel and into the darkness. And the following ride is fast-paced and kind of cool. It's like a new space mountain because it's all in the dark and uh, higher speed with you know, Aerosmith music blasting in your ears the whole time. It's still a very good roller coaster to this day. I've been on it a couple of times in the last few years, and I still think it, it carries weight. It's one of the good ones out there, especially of the themed variety. Of course, Disney World also has several newer roller coasters, but I don't want to dwell too much on them because uh, as we go further and further into this technological future we live in, the roller coaster experiences or the thrill ride experiences, particularly in the Disney department, are departing more and more from the traditional on-rails ride experience. And you can see that with the newest Star Wars experience, which is a mixed-format thrill ride. There's walking portions, there's standing uh, virtual thrill ride portions, there's moving car portions, programmed cars, actors... Um, all kinds of mixed media. And that experience is really quite spectacular, but it's impossible to call it a roller coaster or compare it to a roller coaster. 
I'm not sure when it was constructed, but it, and it wasn't there the first time I went to Animal Kingdom, but there is a Himalayan Yeti-themed roller coaster in that part of Animal Kingdom, and that roller coaster is pretty spectacular. It's definitely part of a new generation of uh, directional changes and track changes, while at the same time having a kind of old-fashioned look to it. It's also one of the better weights, one of the better cues for a roller coaster I've been on because you're in this uh, Himalayan mountain climbing themed environment and you go through a hotel and then through a Buddhist temple, I think, and then through a museum and there's changes in scenery and things that, you know, tell the story. The environment tells the story, which Disney is great at. And we all know that environmental storytelling has nothing to do with how good a roller coaster is, but I still find it delightful that they do it. And that ride itself is quite exciting. It's sort of the, and I think intentionally, spiritual successor to the Matterhorn in Disneyland. In any case, late in that ride, there is a uh, point where you go more or less vertical, stop, and sort of fall backwards. And uh, that's what I meant by a track change. I think it you go backwards down a different path than you went up. And I think that's a pretty neat feature. This isn't too different from the Hagrid motorcycle experience at Universal Studios Florida, where at one point in that, the car that you're in backs up and then the track drops like a story through the floor and then pushes you out on another track. It's also a particularly exciting ride for the person who is strapped into the motorcycle part of the motorcycle and sidecar. And while I'm not a big fan of asymmetric experiences for co-riders and roller coasters, it does give you some cause to want to go on the ride again, if you can. Now, while the rides at Disney World or Universal Studios are exceptional in their presentation, they have some of the best cues some of the best weights, and some of the most exciting in-ride attraction. I tend to think that the best parks for in just enjoying, purely enjoying roller coasters tend to be amusement parks that aren't 
overly saturated with other themes. Because usually those other themes, they become, they tend to overwhelm the overall experience, or they have the potential to. And it's not so much that it takes away from the roller coasters so much as the roller coasters aren't the point. And it's a different experience. You know, for example, the Star Wars part of Disney World is very immersive and it feels and looks like Star Wars. And the Harry Potter portions of Universal Studios, especially Florida, are very impressive experiences. The Hogwarts area looks like it does in the movies. And the experience at Universal Studios Florida, where there's two separate Harry Potter lands in different parks with separate admissions, there's a train that goes between them and the train itself is a immersive experience and it's a different immersive experience going in both directions and it's really cool but you probably wouldn't think of those places as where you go just to hit roller coasters and when I was a kid there were a few places that we went to not very often, but we went a few times. Um, if you know Hershey's Chocolates, they have an amusement park, or at least they did. I haven't looked into it in a long time. But they had a series of pretty solid roller coasters that were destination-worthy. I believe one was the Comet. It was a wooden roller coaster. And when I was a kid, I was definitely more into the wooden roller coasters. There was also King's Dominion in Virginia. I'm not super sure about roller coaster history, and maybe I can look it up, but I think that King's Dominion's Shockwave was one of the first stand-up roller coasters. And I wasn't as tall as I am now when I first went on that thing. And it, you know, the shoulder restraints, big padded heavy metal shoulder restraints, uh, my head didn't fit over the top of them. So... It was also, you know, an early version of the standing roller coaster, and it was not smooth. And I remember just getting beat the heck out of by the shoulder pads. It didn't hurt so much, but it was just getting whacked in the side of the head back and forth the whole ride. But I loved it anyway. 
remember I got a souvenir hat at one point. It was a real 80s cap. I think the colors were like purple and something else, and there might have been a checker design on it. And it had a uh, one of those shade flaps on the back of it, which I usually just had to tuck in underneath. Now, I think, strangely enough, that hat... I'm not sure where it ended up, but I want to say that it was very justifiably lost on another roller coaster many years later. But I'm not positive about that. I don't remember too much else clearly about King's Dominion except just being overall impressed by the amount of roller coasters, but I don't have too many specific memories of them. Now, after I moved to California, I, you know, I moved to the Bay Area, and in the Bay Area, on the peninsula, we have Six Flags Great America, or what used to be Six Flags Great America. It's still Great America, although it won't be for very long. They announced in the last year that they'll be closing Great America in the next 10 years. It's located in Santa Clara. I think it's near the stadium. I haven't been there since the stadium was built, so that gives you some idea of how long it's been since I went to Great America. I might have gone once during college, but most of my memories were before high school and during high school. And they were... Uh, purchased from Great America by, I believe, um, I'm not sure what the company's correct name is, but it's like Cedar Entertainment or something like that, which are the owners of Cedar Point, which I had never been to until my partner took me there with her family, which is the park that she went to when she was growing up. And if you haven't heard of Cedar Point, then you might not be a roller coaster aficionado. I thought I was until I went and realized that Cedar Point in the United States is kind of like the ultimate roller coaster park. But, but we'll come back to that, because that's honestly about as recent as my memory gets besides the couple of visits to Disney World by chance. 
but I wanted to make sure that I gave the fair shake to Great America because the Six Flags parks are pretty good. Um, although I, I grew up near Great Adventure in New Jersey, but I don't remember going to it. But Great America, I have definitely some memories, some terrifying memories of. They had a few sort of classic roller coasters that are fun and old. And they have a few new ones. The two experiences, though, that really stand out in my memory of going there are one that was just personally terrifying, which was they had a roller coaster that was just a loop that went forward and backwards through the loop, and that's all it was. So it was really just, you know, one of those sort of quick on and off thrill rides, the kind you'd go on in between waits for a longer, better roller coaster. And to give you some context of how long ago this was, the roller coaster, despite having a loop, did not have shoulder restraints. And so there was just a lap bar. And, you know, theoretically, the centripetal force should hold you in just fine. But for me, just like how I was too short for the shockwave when I first went on it, I was too skinny for this roller coaster, and this roller coaster has since been removed from the park, I'm pretty sure. And um, I remember that it was the, the first going through it forwards was super fun because I love roller coasters with loops. I love all roller coasters, really. And then, you know, it goes and it stops as it goes up the ramp and then comes back and goes backwards. And as it went backwards, I didn't feel the gravitational pull into the car and I almost fell out of the roller coaster. And I just remember gripping the lap bar with both arms for dear life, just waiting for that ride to be over and I thought that was the closest I came to getting injured on a roller coaster but I survived and it didn't stop me I don't think from even going on another roller coaster that day and many years later with some friends from high school we went there and they had the new drop zone drop ride and I fully appreciate that if you like roller coasters, you don't have to like the drop rides. And they had one there called The Edge for a long time that was just a, basically a rickety cage that sent maybe six, seven, eight people across, and then it just dropped you down a ramp that was maybe four or five stories tall, and that was about it. You go down the ramp and you end lying on your back as the car stops by going outward from the from the free fall and 
That ride I got a real kick out of. But the new one, back then, it was whatever, many years ago, when the drop zone was new, its thing was a carousel-style single tower with no cage, just uh, bicycle seats and shoulder restraints. Sat about six across on each side, and they could run, I think, two or three at, at once so that the the speed of uh, moving the line was actually pretty good. But its height was spectacular. I'm not sure how tall it was, but it was easily three times taller than the, the older drop ride that they had. And that one I only went on one time. I admittedly have a fear of heights that has intensified as I've gotten older. When I was a kid, it didn't bother me much, but as I've gotten older, it's it's intensified, and I, maybe it's plateaued. I don't feel like I'm significantly more afraid of heights today than I was five years ago, but in my 30s and 40s, I'd say I'm significantly more afraid of heights than I was in my teens. And yet maybe this was why the drop zone was so high. I remember going on it with my friends, and we, as we went up, I had this like brilliant idea that it would be kind of cool to, we thought, you know, close our eyes and, and like have the experience of opening them at the top without you know, knowing how far up we had gone. And I don't think we succeeded in that because, you know, somebody opened their eyes early and started swearing. And I remember when I opened my eyes, we were facing north, northwest-ish. And... I could see, like, the whole Bay Area. I could see all the way to San Francisco. And that was positively terrifying. And that was probably the only time where I was, like, so scared by a ride that I didn't want it to keep happening. And then, of course, moments later, there was a series of clicking sounds, which meant you knew you were about to fall. And then we fell. And I'll never forget that the drop was so long that I screamed, ran out of breath, and then screamed again before we got to the bottom. And then after that, vowed never to do it again. Would I recommend it? Yes. You have to recommend something like that. It's still, all things considered, the safest way for you to have such a terrifying experience. And after it's over, you go get some cotton candy.
It took us a while, but my partner and I eventually also made it to Six Flags Discovery Kingdom. And I would say that if you're in the Bay Area and you're in the North Bay, that you should check it out. It's definitely got enough to do for a day. And it's, you know, packed with roller coasters. It's an amusement park. It's also a good, maybe, stop if you're on your way into Napa or wine country and you have that bug for a thrill ride. But it's not as serious as Magic Mountain. Now, Magic Mountain, also Six Flags, I have not been to either in a very long time. I went there with one of my buddies while we were working a job in Los Angeles many years ago, and we had a weekend day off and decided to go hit some roller coasters, and we had quite a ball there. The standout roller coaster there in my memory was what we like to call Goliath, at the time, I think that it may have been the tallest roller coaster in the world. If it wasn't, it wasn't far from being the tallest. And if it was, it wasn't the tallest for very long. Because if I remember correctly, it was usurped very quickly afterward by another one at Cedar Point. But Goliath was pretty spectacular in that it was part of a, at the time, a new wave of metal roller coasters that emulated the track style of wooden roller coasters. So it doesn't have any loops but what it has is a accentuated wooden experience in that everything can be bigger and more extreme because the, the roller coaster is able to handle it. So the, you know, the drop at the beginning is absolutely intense and it's terrifying, but, but also wonderful. And another ride that I liked there was another rickety one, sort of like how the shockwave was rickety. I forget again what it was called. Maybe I can readdress this in another episode, but they had an older roller coaster that was sort of, you could tell, was at one time a centerpiece at the park. And it was a hanging roller coaster where the cars were hanging off of the track from so the track was above and they had really thoughtfully curated the experience so that it's flying over some hills and over trees and through trees and you know would be considered tame by today's standards but it was really a clever roller coaster 
I definitely don't mind just a little bit of cleverness in a roller coaster when it's not at a theme park, you know, that it takes you in a direction you don't expect to go or has a conversation of twists and turns that aren't totally expected. I feel like I should have prepared better for this segment with a bit of time spent reminding myself what all of the different terminologies there are for roller coasters, because there are. Also, I don't want to make this episode exclusively about roller coasters, so I'm just going to finish up here with Cedar Point. Cedar Point deserves all of its accolades. It's a relatively sizable roller coaster park, primarily roller coaster forward, and it's on a peninsula. So it doesn't have a lot of room to expand the way that Disney can expand forever and ever and ever. And part of the upside of that is that they're very thoughtful about how they curate their rides. They still have rides from generation to generation, but they're also able to remove as needed some rides. But my impression is that they keep the classics around. One particular classic that replaced um, Goliath as the tallest roller coaster was called Millennium Force, which the locals will call Milfo. And Milfo is spectacular. It has the same uh, aircraft cable launch design that the rock and roller coaster has, except it is a upward um, drive. So you don't really get as much time as on other roller coasters to think about your decisions. You don't get that slow clack, clack, clack ride up to the top and then sort of slowly peek over the top. It, it pulls you up there pretty darn fast. Goes a lot faster than you expect it's going to. And then the drop is mind-numbing. I love it. My partner and I, if we're not sure whether we'll go on a roller coaster more than once, we do make the effort to ride in the front. And I'm generally a front-of-coaster fan. I know there are people who prefer the whip, which is the back. Um, if I have my way on an excellent roller coaster, I'll try all parts of the train. Because there's absolutely, you know, valid preference for riding the whip. It gets more, it's a more tumultuous experience because you're at the back. You know, you're getting pulled, not pushed. 
But I, I love coming over the top of the cliff from the front because that's scary. And truthfully, for as long as a wait can be these days at a park, and they can be just torturously long, you know, 90 minutes, two hours, three hours. Disney has three-hour waits. That's a long wait for an experience that lasts, you know, under a minute in some cases. But for as long as the wait usually is, almost everywhere the, the wait for the front is only a couple extra minutes. You know, if you don't fast track right to the front, usually you'll be waiting behind just four more people than you had to wait just to get on the platform. So I think it's worth it. If you haven't done it before, then, you know, make the effort the next time you have the opportunity. Hopefully you would thank me. Cedar Point also has, you know, that legacy appeal. They have an old mine car roller coaster that's pretty tame. It's a, maybe a good starter to the day or a good palate cleanser in between their intense rides. Because if you look into it, you'll see that they have some of the top roller coasters in the world. And when we were there... A few years back, we didn't even get to go on the newest one that was on, has made many lists as one of the best out there. That's a one of these like combo types. I would have to look it up because it's been so long. And they had another roller coaster that was super cool that kind of almost felt a little tongue in cheek about its geography. Um, as one of the older ones uh, takes you like on a long track out towards the water and back away from the park over the parking lot um, as though at some point they were realizing how little space they actually had to work with you know these roller coasters are like one on top of another and somebody decided with their design hey let's stretch one out over the Let's stretch one out over the parking lot and out to the water. And that's pretty cool if you ask me. Roller coasters are fantastic. And I, you know, all I'm really doing, I guess, is listing vaguely roller coasters that I've been on. And I don't remember the names of most of them. But if you're into roller coasters, then you know that it almost doesn't matter. It's just about getting on the ride and having that brief, super fun, super thrilling experience. But now I, I definitely want to find my way to another roller coaster sometime soon. Are you a roller coaster fan? What's your favorite roller coaster? Let me know. I think that I will try to keep the remaining list of summertime things as brief 
and as fast paced as possible. One reason for that is that if I'm completely honest, I don't quite know what should come next because the reason for this was really just that I didn't think I had time to talk about roller coasters last time. So I'm going to be reaching a little bit for these summertime activities and imagining the possibility that we will meet again next summer. I would hate to exhaust every possibility. Now, I have a lot of, you know, slow-paced ideas, and I think that is a good way to follow up talking about roller coasters. One thing that I like is when it's hot or warm in the summertime, there's ideally on a perfect summer night, a point where it becomes bearable out. And it's sometimes around dusk when the sun has finally set and it's still light out. And I like walking around the neighborhood at that time. When you're you're past the heat, you've beaten the heat. However, you've had to do that with air conditioning or cheating and going to the movies. But if you're lucky and your neighborhood has some walkability, then you hopefully have somewhere you can go that's nearby that is perhaps a purveyor of ice cream or Italian ice, shave ice, gelato, or as we call it in the 50 square mile space around Philadelphia, water ice. But a nice warm-ish summer evening, you're still able to wear shorts and a t-shirt. And it's warm enough that something cold is still refreshing. I don't know if this is exactly a summertime activity, but it's something that I haven't had very much around since I moved to California. 
San Francisco doesn't usually get very hot. And many other parts of California that I've spent time in tend to have a true night and day in the sense of climate where you go from a very hot daytime to a very cool nighttime by comparison and you don't have as much of that moment of cooling off that isn't oh now it's time to put on a jacket in California it's very often that at night you just want to put on a jacket in summertime even so it's in part fond memories of growing up and also the occasional experiences of visiting friends and family outside of the state of California visiting Philadelphia visiting Ohio visiting New York And in fairness, even the climate in Southern California has some of that too. I'm speaking primarily about living in Northern California. So I'm not sure what we call this, but maybe we call this a summer evening stroll. I suppose if I'm listing things that I should note, but ask for discretion on the part of you, dear listener, that we keep it between the two of us, that I do to some extent, and I want to be a little careful about how I put this. Enjoy canoeing. I don't love canoeing, but I have to say that sometimes it's nice to get out on the water in a craft that you power yourself and go somewhere, either along a river, uh, kayak into the ocean a little, that sort of thing. There's something quite tranquil about it. The reason I hesitate is because I don't love the point in the experience where you are tired and all you want to do is get back to land or shore or wherever it is. And I've had that experience enough times to know that I don't like it very much. One of my favorite experiences of this sort that we discovered during the pandemic here is uh, something that's up north in Northern California here, which is a 
kayak experience in a small bay where they have uh, bioluminescent life. And I'd have to double check, but I, I don't think it's algae. You know, when I heard we were going to go see bioluminescent life, I was thinking maybe there's either fish that have some form of light source because, you know, those exist in the deep ocean, or that there would just be like leafy, you know, seaweed basically that glowed for some reason. But instead I was quite impressed. It's, uh, what was there was some kind of, I think it was a microscopic, like single celled life. Um, and I, I don't remember what it's, you know, classification is, I would have to double check, but it's not what you expect. It's, it gets excited by motion and interaction and is therefore excited by your boat in the water, your hands in the water, your paddle in the water. And so when you interact with the water, the water glows around your interaction. And it's really quite a magical experience. If I had to describe it to someone over the age of 40 who hadn't done it before, I would say if you've seen the movie Tron, there's a scene where they drink water from a river in the, in the computer world, and that water glows, and it makes them glow. It's a little bit like that. It's kind of magical and unexpected, and uh, kind of a neat thing to do one night. Something, again, that you can put on your agenda if you're doing a little road trip through Northern California. If you go north of San Francisco and decide to see wine country and Napa and redwoods and things like that, you can stop off and get, uh, get a little nighttime iridescent canoe experience. It's in an area that's also known for its oysters, so you might be able to double up there. I suppose it is a little bit cheating to do canoe when we had hiking and that there's similarities to the things I like about the two, but I'll finish canoe by saying that there's something nice about traveling under your own power and being able to stop whenever you want, wherever you want, and, you know, relax and hang out or have lunch, you know, pack a sandwich and then move on with maybe a little extra thrill than just doing it on foot. Are you a canoeing and kayaking type of person?
let me know. I'm honestly not one for swimming. I'm not traditionally a big get wet person. I'm also not much of a beach person, which is why I haven't mentioned it very much so far. But I do have to admit that over the last few years, I have developed an appreciation for snorkeling. And I think part of what works for me with snorkeling is that it includes some of my appreciation for wildlife, my general preference that things not be too heavily active, but with some slight sense of adventure. And I'm not really that hardcore about the snorkeling. I just like being somewhere that is relatively calm, but has an abundance of ideally, you know, fish and coral and things like that to enjoy while snorkeling. I like it when it's pretty relaxing, when you can just float there and look at something. I also like it if it's a little bit exciting, but I am enough of a fraidy cat that if I'm in an unsupervised environment, I don't like to go too far from where my feet can touch the bottom. My favorite spot is on the west coast of Maui. There's a pretty popular snorkeling spot, or it's known to be a good, like, amateur snorkeling spot. It's like just a stretch of beach on the side of the road south of Lahaina near Leota's uh, pie shop, which if you haven't been to that, you need to get a banana cream pie or you haven't truly lived. But I like a spot where I can go a little ways out, but it's still shallow and there's coral, and just sort of hang with the fishes. That's sort of my comfort level for unsupervised snorkeling. Whereas with supervised snorkeling, I'm a little bit more willing to go to deeper places or see things that are more out there. The first time I went snorkeling with my partner, really what got us into it, we went to an island in Thailand that was 
known for scuba diving. And two of the spots that we went there were especially cool. One of them was a a deep sort of bay that had living in it a school of some kind of fish that had several hundred thousand fish that all swam together. And I'll never forget floating on the surface, looking down into the water. And then one of the guides just dove into the water and swimmed you know, 20, 30 feet down and kind of caused the fish to scatter and they all just, you know, were, was chaos for a moment, but then they came back together with their herd instinct and whipped around and like waves of just shimmering scales and fish and it was pretty wild. And then... On the same trip, the very last stop they took us to, they sort of sold it as a chance to see a sea turtle, which at that time I still hadn't seen in the quote-unquote wild before. And we got out of the water, and there was like a jellyfish bloom that was happening, but they weren't... Um, painful or poisonous. They were just gelatinous. It was like swimming in boba, I assume. I haven't done any swimming in boba, but drinking boba tea reminds me of this experience. But we, we swam away from the boat and, you know, had to go a little distance because the visibility wasn't very good with all of the just small bubbles of, I don't know, I think they were young jellyfish, just everywhere. And, you know, we tried to get away. We swam a good distance from boat, and then when they called us back to the boat, I'll never forget that I had gone far enough away from the boat that it took a good ten minutes to swim back. And swimming in this thick boba... And it was, it was so funny. It made me laugh. I had to stop every minute or two to laugh because if you were swimming face down in the water, the, the jellyfish were getting caught in your mask. And, you know, the, in your, like... I don't remember if I was wearing the flippers or water shoes, but they were getting in there, and it was kind of gross, but it was so extreme that it was just kind of funny. And I just remember, you know, I would, I would have to laugh. I would have to stop and basically do a backstroke for a little while because I couldn't put my face in the water without feeling so weird would definitely recommend that experience if you have the opportunity though it's it's funny you don't get to see the sea turtle you hope to see but you do have something to laugh about
but snorkeling is definitely one where, even though I'm not a big water person, I've, I have come around. We bought our own snorkeling equipment after, I think, a stay in Hawaii and, or ahead of another stay in Hawaii during COVID, and for me, I wear glasses, so getting prescription goggles made all of the difference. You go from, this is a pretty neat experience, to, wow, I can see all these things. And really, I just like floating there and, you know, staring at a fish, staring each other down. Probably both think the other one looks funny. Well, although we only added a couple more delightful summertime activities to this roundup of my favorite summertime activities, this now feels like a more solid collection. I am sure there are still more that I have missed, but perhaps we can return to the subject next summer, or perhaps in the winter, if we are experiencing a longing for the summertime. You may also feel free, dear listener, to reach out to me with some of your own favorite summertime activities on Twitter, at RyanRamblesPod, or at Anvil1. I think we'll leave it here for this episode. I hope that you have been adequately rambled to rest and are not hearing what I am saying right now. However, if for some reason you are conscious at this time, I will leave you with these parting words. Flood. Noisy, lucky, daughter, tomatoes, interfere, spy, impress, inject, and deliver. Thank you again. I am your host, Ryan. Music has been by Disparition. And we'll see you in the next episode.